So Colossians chapter 2, um, I will read verses 11 through 15 uh, once again, uh, and then uh, we'll pick it up in verse uh, 11, so I, I'm not sure what part of your notes that is, but it's not at the beginning part, but uh, anyway, let's, uh, let's begin looking at Colossians 2, beginning in verse 11. Paul writes, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So again, in verse 11, as we continue on through the things that Paul has said, Paul is bringing up what we uh, had began, we began to discuss a little bit last week, which was circumcision. So, so again, if you're unsure what circumcision is, circumcision is the removal of the foreskin uh, from the male organ that is normally done in America almost automatically uh, whenever a baby boy is born. Um, it's kind of, it, I think it's, uh, there was not necessarily a medical reason why it was done in America, but the Christian tradition has been to do that because of circumcision in the Bible. Now, God commanded the Jews to do that because it was a sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and his descendants. Um, but Paul uses that here as an illustration um, or as an analogy, trying to help these individuals understand the significance, again, of our salvation and what has taken place. So in the same way that the foreskin is cut off and removed, there's this idea that sin has been removed from us. We know that we are free from the power of sin. Uh, and as I've said many times before, on, on one hand, that kind of makes, us, makes it worse for us because that means as a Christian, whenever we sin, it's always on purpose. It, it's never accidental because we're free from the power of sin. We don't have to sin, but we do. We're still in the flesh. The flesh is weak. And the Bible explains very clearly that we are going to sin. But we should strive to sin less as we grow in the Lord. We'll never become sinless in this life. One day we will be delivered from sin completely. And part of that involves the giving us of a new body that will no longer have that inherent weakness. But Paul really wants to emphasize to these individuals um, this new life we have in Christ, again, is not just a, uh, a ritual that you go through and then you go on about your business. And the reason why I say that is because, once again, if we kind of think back, um, if you have any familiarity with how religion worked during the time of Jesus, during the time of Paul, uh, and, of course, before the time of Christ, most pagan religions were basically... Uh, you would perform some kind of a ritual to be a member of the group, and then you would perform another kind of ritual, whether it's making a sacrifice, making payments, whatever it happened to be, to make your God or the gods happy with you, or you were trying to bribe them to bless you. There was never, there was, there was never moral teaching with any other religion. Judaism was the only religion that did that, 
where there was a, a moralistic teaching that went along with it, where God made statements about how we are to live day to day, how we are to treat people. Uh, if you were worshiping Venus, that was not part, there was no curriculum. You didn't go to the temple of Venus to learn how to treat your husband or your wife because the, they didn't care. There was nothing about that. Um, so that's what made Judaism very interesting to a lot of individuals. That's why, again, as I mentioned, when you go through the book of Acts, when Paul or Peter or different individuals would show up at the synagogue and they would preach the gospel, you would have non-Jews there as well. Those were individuals who would come to the synagogue to listen to the Bible being read uh, and listen to whoever was giving the lecture or how they, if they were answering questions because they were intrigued. Uh, some individuals would begin to convert to Judaism. That did happen. Uh, but again, it was a big curiosity among people. So Paul, as he writes this, he knows that he's writing to a mixed audience. It's believers, but there are some that are Jews and some that are Gentiles. The Gentiles, aren't, they're not, they, they don't know about this kind of stuff. This is all new to them. But then for the, for the Jewish individuals, he wanted them to know that one of, the, one of the main differences now as believers in the one true God is that God has given you his spirit to give you the strength, to give you energy, to give you God's assistance to keep the law. Now, they weren't under the law of Moses. They were under the law of Christ. But the idea was in the Old Testament, God did not, there was, there was nothing in the law and there was no provision from God to help you obey the law. It was just a demand. Obey the law and you'll be blessed. Disobey the law, you're cursed. That was it, cut and dry. Uh, now for the believer, when we come to Christ, God himself dwells within us. The Holy Spirit of God dwells within us. And, and as we are we're regenerated by God and part of the purpose of the indwelling of the Spirit is to empower us to live in obedience to God's word. And so as the Holy Spirit changes our hearts, changes our desires, you know, our behaviors change and they, they change along the way. There, there is often maybe a big change in the beginning uh, and then there, there continues to be a change. We continue to mature uh, spiritually. And when we mature spiritually, normally what happens, we're also maturing emotionally. Um, I know there's a lot of issues today uh, going on in our society. I think a large part of what we see is a lot of emotional immaturity. Uh, some of the reasons for that um, is there's a delay in expecting people to take on responsibility in their life. Um, we, we tend to uh, give people maybe too much leniency uh, when they're teenagers in expecting too much from them. Uh, and of course that, that adolescence kind of continues. There's, there's some who believe that adolescence unofficially ends at 29 uh, and not 17. And so there's issues there. But the other issue, which is maybe a bigger issue, is that whenever an individual begins to abuse alcohol, whatever age that is, or whatever age they begin to abuse drugs of any kind, whether it's prescription or illegal drugs, or when the individual becomes abused, um, when it comes to physical abuse, whether that's sexual or just a beating, when it comes to um, emotional abuse, um, when that begins in their life, that tends to stunt your growth emotionally. So it doesn't cut it, doesn't shut it down, but it stunts it. And so what happens is, is you, the normal maturing process that takes place in the life of a person mentally or emotionally uh, slows down. And so that's why sometimes 
you may have observed this. You'll observe behavior in people that you may be watching a situation, maybe something you see on TV, where an individual, you may be thinking, yeah, that person is so immature, why are they acting that way? That, that person is 30 and they're throwing a tantrum like a kid. Where does that come from? Well, now I don't know everybody's life history, but that's, that's the basic idea of what happens. So I saw a lot of that when I was working in the jail. You know, a lot of guys that are there are there, they've abused alcohol and or drugs or were abused or all the above. And so there'll be a lot of immaturity in the, in the lives of these men. And that was reflected in the bad decisions they make and those types of things. But what I also saw take place automatically is that when an individual became a believer in Jesus Christ and that person began to understand the Bible and learn the Bible, there was automatically, along with their growth, was a change in their emotions, a change in the way they controlled their emotions, a change in the way they thought and felt about things. Now, it didn't mean they went from being immature to mature in seven days, but there would be this change, some faster than others, but there was definitely a change. Uh, in their life, and I, it was, I thought it was amazing uh, to see that take place uh, because there were so many individuals who just, they really were unable to handle a lot of things coming their way emotionally, uh, and that was not because of the amount of stress they were under, it's because of their inability to handle it emotionally because of their immaturity, um, and so that's why it's a good thing when we help our kids understand the Bible. That helps. That's one of the things or tools that we have to help them to grow emotionally. Question? Is it hoses or just gas in the gas chamber to get these bags out of Can what now? It's hoses that are in the military and they're put in the gas chamber with gas masks and learn how to use Yeah, sure. Yeah. Not necessarily. I mean, you're wearing a gas mask. It depends on what the agent is, what the agent they're using. I was just curious about that. Oh, uh, I would have to read on. It depends. I guess a lot of it depends on the agent, on what agent they're using. So, um, so I would say most of the time, no. But I, you know, I don't. Well, that yes, but he was talking about some physical thing taking place. I. Um, lost on that one. Okay, so um, again, as I said before, Paul is also trying to help them understand what it means to be made complete in Christ. So that's what we're talking about, to be complete in Christ. Uh, the idea is, is that uh, every resource you need for, for living life. Now, when we say that as a Christian, what we really mean by that is every resource I need for living life in a way that pleases God. Right? Everything I need in life to, to live a life that's, that's in obedience to God or submission to God. I have all the resources I need I've been given. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to live it perfectly, but it's not like I'm really trying to live the Christian life and after maybe three years, God says, you've been doing pretty good. I'm going to give you more help. That, that's not how that works. Everything we need. So we receive the Holy Spirit when we become believers. You receive at that moment in time all of the Holy Spirit you're going to get. We get the Holy Spirit. We don't get the Holy Spirit in parts. Um, and that's important because there are some denominations that teach that uh, when you get saved, you get the Holy Spirit later. That's untrue. Uh, that's not what the Bible teaches. Um, at the moment of conversion, you have the Holy Spirit, period. Um, and we have the strength of Christ. We just need to learn to uh, avail ourselves or submit to that. 
and there's no, there's no magic to it. There's no secret. Uh, it's very basic to life. God has, even though life can be complex, there are many truths that are simple in the sense it's attainable by all. God has not made things only accessible to a unique group. So all of us then have access to the resources of Christ the same way. And it comes back down to what we sometimes call the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life, which is reading the Bible, studying the Bible, worshiping with believers, fellowshipping with believers, praying. Everybody can do that. And uh, the responsibility of those who teach, whether it's from the pulpit, Sunday school, small group, is to teach the Bible. That's our source of energy. That's what our soul is fed with. Uh, that's what we do. Um, and so, that, so it's available to everyone and everyone. We can, so the idea then of a church, as we gather together, as we do things together, as we eat together, as we pray together, as we sing together, as we study together, is we are seeking to grow together in the Lord. We all want to continue to improve. Right? And that's all of us. That includes me. I need to continue to grow Anyone who's teaching Sunday school needs to continue to grow. The individual who's 80, who's been saved for 70 years, they need to continue to grow. And they will, they, they will say that they, they want that. They want to continue to grow. We want to continue to mature in the Lord um, and attain the kind of maturity that God wants us to have. And so that's what Paul is getting at, that all the resources you need, uh, God has already given you. We, if we remember that, that will also help us to uh, be on our guard against false teaching because often false teaching has an element where there's something you're missing and the teacher says I have it for you um, so we have to be careful that that's not what's going on all right so now you may listen to someone teach the Bible and they're teaching things you've not heard before because you just don't know those things that's that's, that's going to happen but the idea that they have something or they possess something or they've been given something by God that is either not available to you, that's not true. Um, again, charismatic circles, they do this. The individual teaching may say they have the gift of tongues. Uh, they have this private prayer language with God, which, by the way, that doesn't exist, but they'll say that. And they'll say that if you want to tap into the real power of the Lord, then you need to do that. You see, what are they telling you? There's a resource you don't have. There's something you're missing, and they can help you to get it, or what have you. Uh, that's false teaching. Uh, there are those who will, they may not always say it this way, but they may intimate that they are closer to God than you are, or they have more power. It doesn't exist within the Christian life. We have differing gifts, but we don't have more power. So let's say for the sake of argument, someone does have the gift of healing. I'm not sure that's an operation today, but we won't argue that. Let's just say it is. If someone has the gift of healing, and let's say I have the gift of teaching, and I can't heal anybody, that doesn't mean that they have more power than I have. They have a different gift. That's all it is. It has nothing to do with power. The power is the same. Power comes from God. If God works through them to heal someone, and God works through me to help someone come to Christ or, or to become more mature, same power of God. We all possess that. So, you know, we have, you know, so we need to listen carefully to those who, uh, 
sometimes make certain pronouncements or teach things that go against what the Bible says. Yes, Mike. Sure. Yeah. Um, most definitely, that absolutely takes place. Um, and I'll, you know, again, not every false teacher does this. There are. I do believe it's possible for some people to be a false teacher, and that's not their intent. They've just been misled. They've been mistaught. That can happen. But if they're a true believer and they're taught what the Scripture says. And, and they look and they go back and they study it. I believe that within time, whatever that time frame is, they're going to come out of that. There are others, and the Bible talks about individuals, uh, let's see, it's uh, Second Peter that talks a lot about this, that they're basically, to put it in plain language, they're after your money. They're after your loyalty. That's what they're after. And then they're going to use Christian terminology, church, scripture, experiences, whatever, to try to get your money into their pocket. And that happens a lot today. Um, and um, so we have to be on our guard. The health and wealth segment of Christianity is big into that. They're not the only ones, but they're big in it. And it's not, and again, it's not just what we call maybe mega churches. Not all mega churches are bad. Uh, and it's not just, I would say, the big charismatic churches. There's tons of small churches everywhere where the leaders are in the same thing. They're just trying to get your money, trying to get your following. Uh, they're not really concerned. So it's not just a, a, a big church, big money thing where greed is the motive. Uh, whether the person is rich or poor, greed can definitely be a, a big motivator. Um, and so we have to be on our guard. That's why Paul wrote and Peter wrote often about being on guard against false teachers because they're out there and they want to uh, ruin your life spiritually. And it's, and it's really more, it's more about... Ruining you spiritually, not ruining you financially. You, you lose all your money, you lose all your money. Uh, but that's really less of a problem than you losing sight of the Lord uh, or misunderstanding who God is or maybe uh, not even understanding what salvation is. You know, that, those are worse problems uh, than the other. So that's why, again, we have to be on our guard. So again, uh, this is what Paul is getting at. So as he talks about circumcision, again, he's really talking about spiritual circumcision as I mentioned last week toward the end, it's really not a new thing. Uh, I think those who were Jewish uh, and had Jewish background, they, they really understood. And so I, I mentioned to you that uh, there is that Jewish prayer that a Jewish man would pray where he would say, he would thank the Lord that he's not a woman, not a Samaritan, and not a Gentile. Because those are the three worst things they can imagine being. Now, that's not sanctioned by God, but that's what they prayed. Um, and the idea of, of being a Gentile is you were uncircumcised, so you were in a sense marked and you were outside the fold. Um, and, and that was, if you, if you remember, that's where early on in the church, a problem arose among a group of individuals called the Judaizers. And they would come into a church and they would tell individuals that it's a great thing that you believe Jesus is the Messiah. But if you really want to be close to God, you need to go all the way. And what that meant was combining Judaism and Christianity. And so... That would then mean not only following all the law of Moses, but you had to be circumcised. And so Paul wrote later on and said, yeah, that's not true. That's false teaching. Um, and, but, but that's what that kind of thing was going on, for whatever the reason. Again, maybe, may, maybe false teachers are trust trying to get you to follow them. You know, it's a big ego boost. Uh, but the bottom line is, is it had taken place. 
So Paul wants them to understand uh, really what this is all about. So again, the terms circumcised and uncircumcised, those were emotionally charged symbols to Israel and to their Gentile neighbors. Um, and that issue ended up, again, ended up causing a very big problem within the church. And that's why Paul had to address it uh, the way that he did, primarily in Galatians, but that wasn't the only place. So again, the, the most significant thing about circumcision, is it was a symbol of the need for the human heart to be cleansed from sin's deadly disease. And again, that's the idea um, that you know, we have a natural tendency to sin. We have a natural bent to sin. We're all born with a sin nature. And so Paul deals with that, trying to help us to understand that we're, again, free. So that's why, as believers, we talk about sometimes examining our lives, thinking about the way that we're living, um, confessing our sin. Remember that when we talk about confessing our sin as a believer, we're not confessing our sin so we can go to heaven. Okay, a believer is already going to heaven. So for them, confession is different. All right, so at conversion, we confess sin, confess that we're sinners. And we believe in the work of Christ, put our faith in Christ for salvation. When we become a believer, every single sin you ever committed and every single sin you will commit is forgiven. But we confess our sins as believers because uh, of the other aspect of forgiveness. And that is this. Forgiveness, if you, if you like to take a normal coin, there's heads and there's tails, same coin. So one side is judicial or legal or forensic. All those, all those words mean the same thing. It's, it's the legal aspect of our salvation. My account is cl clean. There's no sins on my account any longer. They've been wiped out because Christ has paid the debt. The other side is relational. We confess our sins um, because it hinders or hurts the relationship that I have with God. I've disobeyed God, so I've disappointed him. So in the same way that if a husband and wife argue and they ask each other for forgiveness, what they don't say is, sweetheart, can you forgive me so I can be your husband again? Because what you did wrong didn't dissolve the marriage. What you're doing is you're asking for forgiveness because you love your wife. She's, the wife is asking forgiveness from their husband because he is her husband, because they are married and they don't want that to interfere in their relationship. So that's why that's going on. Um, and so that's the aspect of forgiveness uh, that we're talking about. So that's what Christians, that's what we do, is we examine our lives and we confess our sin as we seek to pursue righteousness. Um, and so, but again, the idea that this veil that's over our heart, or this veil that's, that's all being cut away, and we can now seek spiritual truth clearly, which again begins with who is Christ and what Christ has done. It always comes back to that, to make sure that we understand that, uh, because that is the message that continues to get kind of cloudy, where, you know, we, we've been believers for a while, and we're, we're trying to live the Christian life, and sometimes what takes place is we, we, we become aware of our failures, and so we tend to slip into thinking we're not good enough anymore. You know, I, you know, if, you know how could the Lord forgive me for doing this? Or whatever may happen to be, we just kind of slip into this idea that my works... Uh, or that my behavior has something to do, something to add to my salvation. And so what Paul wants to emphasize along with that is that, no, that's untouched. You belong to Christ. So the motivating thing then is this. So the motivating part of, of the Christian life is, I am not seeking righteousness and seeking to obey Christ so I can get anything from him, so I can get salvation and so I can go to heaven. The idea is now that I'm in a relationship with God and God is my father, I should then want to obey what he says because I love him. 
Okay, that's how it is with our kids. Right? Our kids don't always think about this. And it's, normally, and it's true when our kids are young, because you know, they more freely talk about it. And then when they get older, they, they want to be an adult, and they don't want to admit anything. All right? But the idea is, is that children obey their parents, and they do so because they love mom and dad. They don't want to disappoint mom and dad. They don't want to hurt mom and dad. That's a good, healthy relationship. It's not because they're afraid. Now, they may, be, they may be afraid to get in trouble, but even if you think about that aspect, you know, obviously I'm not talking about parents that abuse their kids, but if a, if a child's afraid to get in trouble, normally the reason why they're afraid is because they don't want mom or dad to be hurt or disappointed in them. That's what they're afraid of. They, they, don't, want to, they don't want to hear or feel the expression of their disappointment. And so that's sometimes why they may even cry, even if you haven't spanked them. Maybe you won't spank them. And they just they start to cry because, you know, they, they have this sense that there's a problem in this relationship. And they don't want that. And as I mentioned, I think, last week, one of the important things we do, especially when our kids are young, is that we hug them. You know, after we discipline them, we want to reinforce our, uh, our love for them, that it is unconditional. That we're not just loving them when they're good. We even love them when they're bad even when we have to, you know, correct them. Uh, and so it's, a, it's kind of a complicated concept, but they learn it really easily if we display it properly. They get it. And that is how God deals with us. And so that's what uh, Paul is getting here um, with these individuals. So he really wants them to, uh, to understand that. So again, Paul is, uh, when he talks about spiritual circumcision, he's talking about the body of flesh. So the idea is, is the body of flesh should be taken off like an old garment and cast away so we're free from its dominion and its power over us. So when we talk about uh, the return of Christ or when, when, the, when the Lord, you know, the, the, on the last resurrection, the idea is this fleshly body then is changed by God. Right? So this fleshly body is limited because of all of its inherent weaknesses, because of the curse of sin. And so there are times, you know, we, we struggle. There's, we have these desires we have to overcome and all these types of things. There's things that interfere with our desire to trust God. We, we actually trust ourselves more at times than we do God. So we have to overcome the flesh. And what the Bible keeps using is this terminology that, 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 the, that the power of the flesh has been discarded. It's been thrown away. And so even though it's, we're living in it and it's very powerful, it really no longer has dominion over me unless I give it dominion. Uh, and Romans, I believe, says that uh, we become enslaved to whatever we submit to. That's kind of the idea. Um, so if we, if we give in to sin, we set, we're setting ourselves up to become, in a sense, slaves of sin. Uh, I use that, that term as accurate, but we have to be careful that we don't think that if I become a slave of sin again, that somehow that's not my fault. Okay, it is our fault. Uh, we sometimes think about it in the wrong way. It, some of it goes back just to how we think about uh, illegal drug use. All right? We think about illegal drug use, that when someone begins to use, whether it's heroin, cocaine, or whatever, that when they begin to use it, then the drug takes over and they can't help themselves. Just so you know, that's been proven to be untrue. All right? That is not what takes place. The person desires it very strongly, absolutely. But they can resist it. Happens all the time. Uh, again, 90, I think it's 90, 90% of all cocaine and heroin users that overcome it do so without any program. No methadone program, 
no 12 steps, 90% of those who get better, get better without all of that. Normally, not always, but normally, what enables them to do that is they find something worth living for or something they have become committed to out of love. It could be marriage, it could be a child, it could be a lot of things, but that takes place. But, but, uh, but that's important because, again, that individual has the ability within them, in a sense, to overcome it, but it becomes much more difficult because we are, we're, we're glued in emotionally, mentally, and in every other way, and so we begin to, we feel overwhelmed. When you feel overwhelmed, that can be paralyzing. Uh, that's why, if you just think about that for a minute. So, I know firemen do this. So when firemen practice putting out fires, they also practice going into buildings that are filled with smoke. Now, the reason why they do that is because that's a scary situation when you go into a place and you can't see, but you're supposed to rescue somebody. So they teach them what? Well, they, they go through the book, right? And the book may tell them how to maybe work along. Now, everything I'm saying isn't right, so don't walk out of here thinking I've just trained you to be a firefighter because I haven't, right? But, you know, whether it's going along the wall and feeling your way, one of the key factors is to what? Not panic. Because if you panic, you don't think well. So when you train, they will then sometimes have you go into a, a building where the smoke is so thick you cannot see anything. And... They, and, you, and they train over and over and over, learning how to navigate your way through a building to find whoever needs help to rescue them. One of the reasons they do that is not just so you know how to do it, but when you face the real situation, you've been through it before. Because you've been through it, you know exactly what it's like to be in a building where you can't see because you've been doing it so much. And so that eliminates the panic. All right? So it's a great thing. Um, when that begins to happen. So the idea then is that um, we can overcome these things, the drugs or whatever, um, because we have this ability that God has given us to overcome these things uh, that we're facing. And sometimes I believe that God even allows us to go through things so we can see his power working in us, so we can see how he delivers us. Or maybe it's something we need to learn. And maybe there'll be some failure on our part to go through it. But the idea is this familiarity that we have with whatever's going on enables us to, to continue to trust God or trust God more because we're accustomed to what's happening. And so that's, that's part of the main idea that, that's here. So we, we, uh, we learn to get rid of this, this body of flesh. We don't have to give in to it, uh, but it's, it's a difficult thing. And so that's why we have God with us. We depend upon God's power. And we also depend upon other believers. You know, that there's that, all those relationships that we have that are important. So uh, that's why uh, Paul says in, we'll cover this again later, but in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, he says to them, he says, do not lie. So do not lie is what's called a uh, present imperative with a negative. So it's a command, but it's, it's a negative command. The positive command is do this. Negative command is don't do this. So this is do not lie. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self or since you laid aside the old man with its evil practices. So he's telling these individuals a very practical thing. Don't lie to each other. Now, don't lie to each other because you've actually already laid aside the old man. Who you were before, you've laid him aside. He's gone. So don't lie anymore because you don't need to. He had the practice of being deceitful you are a new creature in Christ. You're a new creation. 
You don't have to do it that way. You can now do it a new way. You now have that capability that's been given to you by God. You've put on the new man or the new self. Who is the new self or the new man is being renewed. Uh, so that means that there's this continuous process where I guess you would say you're being continuously strengthened. All right? The new man is continuously uh, being strengthened. It's continually renewed in you to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So the true knowledge would be all the, the knowledge that's in Scripture. And so again, you know you no, you no longer have to do that. And as, and as your heart changes, as God changes your heart, then what happens is your desires change. And that's where the big permanent change takes place from God. So then, uh, a man who is tempted to be unfaithful to his wife is tempted in all kinds of ways, sexually, sensually, whatever word he may use. As he matures as a believer, the desires of his heart change, so he no longer is seeking whatever the lust of the flesh are naturally. They be, so the lust in those areas begins to subside. Now, they can flare up again. All right? And so that's why he, has to, he can't let his guard down. But it actually begins to subside. So then what he might not have been, so a temptation, he might not have been able to handle when he was 25. When he's 40, he's able to handle easily. Why? Because he's, he's this renewed man who has different desires. His desire to please the Lord is stronger than his desire for this instant satisfaction. His desire to be faithful to his wife is stronger than this lust that he's experiencing. His uh, desire to keep his family intact, because he recognizes all the, the problems that can come out of this, is stronger than his desire for that. So that's why thinking about a life is so very important, and why the reading of the Bible, giving of the Holy Spirit, that's that process of change that takes place, and how we become different people. Yes? Is there an e, a Bible verse for that? I don't remember where it's at, but I remember reading it somewhere in the Bible. Well, you need to find it, because I don't know where that is. I could call you about it. <laughs> okay, that'd be good. Okay, so look at verse 11 again, and we're going into verse 12. So verse 11 is, In him, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Then he says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So he's, he's going into more detail or more explanation as to this idea of being circumcised, have, you know, your heart being circumcised, uh, what he's been talking about. So the phrase in verse 12, having been buried with, uh, again goes back to that idea of this union that we have with Jesus Christ. Right? There's this, this intimate union. So... To bury here means to, to bury with someone or to be buried with an individual together. And so the idea refers to the believer's barrier with Christ. So the idea here is that we have participated uh, with Christ by, in his death by virtue of our union with him. So, that's, so this, this union we have with Christ is, is so unique but also very real. We then can say when... Christ died, I died. 
And when he was buried, I was buried. And when he rose again, I rose again. Right? That's, that, that's that union we have with Christ. Whatever happened to him happened to us. In, in, I don't want to say it literally because we might get the wrong idea, but this, this identification and connection that we have with Christ is, is that, so much that. Um, there is a story that I read when I was in middle school. It's not a Christian story at all, but I think it kind of helps to illustrate this concept that, we're, that I'm trying to get across here about this identity that we have with Christ, um, and it's this. There's a story of, of a young man who, uh, this, this was shortly after World War II, he was trying to make it as a boxer, and uh, he had an older brother who was a boxer. His brother was very good, but his brother ended up going into the war uh, at World War II, and he was killed in action. And so this, this guy, he was not very successful as a boxer. Uh, he, he lost a lot of bouts, and the man that was training him believed this guy had a ton of potential, and for whatever reason, he would get in the boxing, he would just get pummeled, and, and he would just lose, and he just couldn't get him over the hump. And so um, the way the story goes is on this one particular night, he's fighting, and, he, and he, once again, he's losing the fight. And so in the corner, which you only have 60 seconds to do this in between rounds, the manager says, I don't know why your brother made me promise not to tell you, but I've got to break my promise. He said, when you were a little boy, you had a really bad blood infection and you had to have a, uh, a transfusion and your brother was a match. And so they took some of his blood and you were, and you were given this transfusion of his blood and his blood is coursing through your veins. And he says, you have, and he knew that this guy admired his brother, admired everything about him. And so as he explained to him in 60 seconds, this event that happened, he basically was telling him, you need to do by, right by your brother because you represent your brother. His blood is in your veins. And the way the story goes is the young boy, well, he's, he's a young man. He gets up and he walks out in the middle of the ring and his hands are down. And the guy just goes wham and nails him in the chin. And he just stands there and looks at him and then just beats the mess out of him. And people are like, what happened? I mean, they're like, where did this come from? And I forget how the whole story ends. It doesn't really matter. The point is, is that when he understood, so, what, so the only thing that happened differently, nothing physically happened differently. You know, they didn't give him steroids. That worked instantly. His mind changed. When he understood what he had in his veins, that made all the difference, it made, and it made what? A very real difference. The difference it made was already there. And he then went on to have a successful, a pretty successful career boxing. So this idea then is that we are all made in the image of God. That image is marred by sin. That image is being restored by God. God's work in us is to restore us to the proper image of God. For us to become, in one sense, what God intends us to be. And so we then, uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Word of God, we are being restored to that image. We are, and we are fully capable of then moving in that direction. Uh, and so this identification that we have with Christ is key to our psyche, to our ability to be able to, to move successfully forward. So this is not a psychological trick to make us think that we're better than we are. It's none of that. It's reality. 
In the same way that when that guy told this young man, your brother's blood is coursing through your vein, that was a very real thing. All right? And he didn't just, but it didn't, but that blood didn't make him different. All right? What was going on was already there. Now for us, the difference is it's now God himself lives in us. And so and as we understand what that means, and when we understand who we are in Christ, then our approach to life and our view of life becomes very different. And we become very different people. And so we will find it, it doesn't mean that you will suddenly be, it'll be easy to get over your anger problem, but you will make greater progress. It doesn't mean that you will easily overcome lust, but you'll begin to make progress. It doesn't mean that you will easily uh, move out from areas where you're not really trusting God, but, but you'll begin to make much more progress, some faster than others. Because the difference would be your attitude towards the Lord, your attitude towards, towards the truth of what God says. So that's where sometimes Christianity has been misused by even non-believers, by trying to use it in a psychological way, because there's a lot of truth in that. But the reality of it is this is not a psychological trick. This is not psychological therapy. This is the reality of God living in me, God living in you. So then when we as believers, as I said, again, it makes it hard on us. So if I'm talking to a believer, and that person's been a believer, let's say, for just random numbers, five years, and that person says, I just can't find it within myself to read the Bible on a regular basis. What I know to be true is you won't find a way to read the Bible on a regular basis. You can. You're fully capable. Because God's given you that capability. Unless God's failed you. You, just, you won't. You're, you're giving in to the weakness of the flesh. You don't have to do that. And so whatever excuses we have for whatever is going on, right? when someone says, I just can't put up with my wife anymore. Yeah, you can. You don't want to. You're already looking, uh, not necessarily looking for another woman, but you're already looking for freedom. You, you know, your mind's already made up. You know, I've, I've done counseling with couples before where, uh, one, one, where uh, in, they have a troubled marriage and one of them actually begins to change and make progress. And the spouse gets upset because they had already determined in their mind that their spouse won't change, nothing will be better, and now they're looking for an exit. And now that the person is actually changing, they're ticked because now it interrupts their plans, what they had wanted to have happen. They're not allowing the Lord to change their heart. And I've, and I've, <laughs> it's, I've seen individuals try to sabotage counseling because, you know, that's been the case. They don't like that. So it helps us to, to come face to face with this idea that, you know, we really are responsible for what we do. I, I wish that wasn't the case. I so desperately want to blame other people for things that are going wrong in my life. I want to blame Cindy for a bad day. That's my wife. I want to blame the deacons, whoever. I want to blame somebody, at least partially, so it's not all on me. But the, but the Bible says, no, Bob, it's, it's you. Um, in fact, even when it comes to uh, what I believe is a biblical view of anger, uh, you know how sometimes you know, we get angry at people and we just say, I don't know what it is about so-and-so, but they just make me so mad. The biblical truth is, as a Christian, no one can make you mad. Did you know that? Nobody can, unless you let them. We'll talk about that later. Because that puts it all on you. And we don't really like that. Uh, but that would be the truth.
All right, so now this identification we have with Christ then, again in the Greek language, it says, haven't been buried with, it's in the aorist tense, which means that our identification with Christ is a completed event. Okay? So, by I, so as I grow as a Christian, it's not that my identity with Christ grows, it's my understanding of my identity with Christ grows. That doesn't change. The identity I have with Christ is complete. In the same way that the Bible, when the Bible calls us sons of God or children of God, the Bible uses the analogy that we are, have been adopted. The adoption process is complete. It's not ongoing. My, my younger sister is adopted. Okay, what didn't happen is we adopted her when she was six months old. What didn't happen was the, uh, the caseworker didn't say to my parents, now, you've adopted her when she's six months old, and if she does really well as a daughter, when she's six years old, we'll go to the next stage of adoption. And if that goes well, when she's 12, she's yours. That's not how it worked. Okay? The way it worked was, when the judge signed the paper, it was complete. Over. No matter what my sister does, she is in the family. In fact, I think I've told you before, uh, in most states, with most adoption laws, my dad could disown me and say, you get zero inheritance and there's nothing I can do. He cannot say that to my adopted sister. By the state of, we adopted she was in, we were in Virginia. So by the state of the laws of Virginia, when my dad dies, if my sister, does, whatever is left, if she doesn't get a certain percentage, the state of Virginia steps in with its power and says she must receive such and such no matter what the will says. That's how strong it is. That was completely done when she was six months old and we adopted her. Same idea with us as believers. When we were adopted, signed, sealed, and delivered, nothing can break that. And, and what stands behind our adoption in God's family is not any state or country. It's God himself. And that's why you hear me sometimes I'll say, when people ask a question, they'll say, well, so-and-so is doing this and doing this, you know, are they a Christian? And I'll just basically say, if they are a true believer, then yes, they're saved. I use the word true. Uh, the reason why I use that or say it that way is because it is possible for an individual to think they're saved and they may not be. So there's no such thing as being saved and now you're not saved. The idea is if you're saved, you're saved for all of eternity. We are going to sin, and sometimes we will sin grievously, which is a horrible situation. However, uh, there's never going to be a situation that you will sin so grievously that you lose your salvation. That, that's not in the Bible anywhere. The Bible always deals with salvation as a completed thing. Uh, but again, we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're believers and we're not. That's why the Bible says that we need to examine ourselves to make sure you're of the faith. Uh, it's, it's bad enough to think you're something that you're not. You know, you, 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 you think you belong to one family when you don't, or you think you're rich when you're not, or you think you're smart when you're not. You know, that's not a big deal. But it's a real big deal when you think you're saved and you're not. Because that, that determines all of eternity. And so that's why the Bible emphasizes that. Not to scare us, just for us to, to examine ourselves. And remember that it's, do I have faith in Christ? And not have I met a certain list of regulations, you know, I think it's, we can say more, ask more general questions. So if you've been saved, let's say for 10 years, is the general direction of your life towards God? Yes or no? 
not have you grown by leaps and bounds, just as the general direction of your life towards God. Are you more godly now than you were 10 years ago? Not are you a saint, not are you the most godly or righteous person on the block, just are you more godly than you were then? In you know, some way, shape, or form. All right? Yeah, and I don't want to make it like, sound like it's real sloppy and you can do anything. But the idea is, is, that, is, is that salvation is by, by God's grace, by faith in him. Obedience is just the fruit of or the evidence that we belong to Christ. And, you know, as, as it is with a lot of fruit trees, sometimes there's a lot of fruit, sometimes there's not so much. Sometimes the fruit's kind of good and sometimes the fruit's pretty sour. Um, just that's how it happens. Uh, but we are, we, are, we are to be fruit-producing trees. So in baptism, and of course here, no water is mentioned. That's not what he's talking about. Uh, this would be spiritual baptism, which is done by the Holy Spirit. So every single believer at the moment of salvation, uh, which is the moment of your regeneration in Christ, when you place your faith personally in him and the full atoning substitutionary work of Jesus Christ for each one of us, having fully once for all, Jesus, what Jesus did, fully once for all, paid the price of redemption with his precious blood shed on the, on, the, on, the, on the cross, we then were baptized into the body of Christ. You were baptized into Christ. Um, that was done. So when we do water baptism, water baptism is a symbol of what's already happened. Right? Because some people will be baptized right away. Some may be baptized years later. Different reasons for that. But that's what baptism always symbolizes, is it is symbolizing uh, in an outward ritual what has taken place internally. I've been baptized with Christ. And that's why when we baptize, we always baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why? Because it's a Christian baptism. Other religions baptize. So that marks this out as being a Christian baptism. And the idea is, is that when you go under the water, that is you publicly displaying that you identify with the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. Then when you're raised from the water, that symbolizes Jesus Christ and, and my union with him being raised from the dead. When I went down one person, I come up now a brand new person. That's what it symbolizes. And that's what we are in Christ. And now I, am, I live this resurrected life. It's a new life. God has given me a new life. And I'm to live this new life now as a believer. I live this new life as someone who now belongs to Christ. The old guy is dead. I still have some old problems he had, but I, I'm, not, I'm not married to those anymore. I'm a new person. That's why you've heard me say this many times before. I just I do not buy into um, one of the things. AA has its place, but I don't buy into it because you can, be, you can be clean and sober for 30 years, and if you go to an AA meeting, you introduce yourself as, Hi, my name is Bob. I'm an alcoholic. I do not buy that because that is not what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? You're a new creation, period. You are not an alcoholic. That is, that is negative reinforcement. Um, the idea is, is that that was the old you. You may mess up every now and then, but it's not because you're an alcoholic. It's because you're a human being and the flesh is weak. Um, that's why that took place. And so uh, that's what Paul is emphasizing. Again, the word baptism means to dip. It means to fully immerse. It was a word that was used when, when they would use a dye to change the color of a garment. You would submerge that garment in the dye so they would soak in there and then you would uh, pull it out. And again, all that helps to, again, signify the identification we have with Christ. So when we're buried with Christ in baptism, 
a supernatural transaction took place. It's a very real transaction in the sense it was recorded by God. God is the judge, and as far as he is concerned, that is now the truth about you. When God looks at you, and when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. All I know is I don't deserve that. I am so glad. When I stand before God, he will see the righteousness of Christ. So what we believe, that the Bible teaches, is that when we stand before God for judgment, we are not judged for our sins. That's already taken place. My works are judged or evaluated, and I'm, I either receive rewards or I may lose rewards for works done, but it has nothing to do with my salvation. That is extra, so to speak. But I am, uh, because I am dressed in the righteousness of Christ, my salvation is unaffected. And so I, I have nothing to, uh, to fear because that's what God sees when he looks at us. So, there's, so the reality of that is very, very real. Um, and it's not, again, just some kind of a psychological way to make us feel better about ourselves or to make us feel like we're much more um, uh, progressive, I guess. So let me read to you from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Paul writes, We have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So baptism again is burial, the burial of all that we were as children of Adam. In baptism, we acknowledge that nothing in ourselves could ever please God, and so we're putting the flesh out of God's sight forever. Um, but it does not end with burial. Not only have we been buried, but we have been crucified with Christ and buried, and we've also risen with him to walk in newness of life, and all that takes place at the time of conversion. So that's why we make a real big deal about being converted to Christ, because it is a big deal. A lot of stuff takes place when we come to Christ. It, you are literally being born again. The same way that it's a big deal when mama gives birth to a baby in the hospital. Man, a whole bunch of stuff is going on when that takes place. And it's awesome. This, there's human life. It is a new life is now in your hands uh, that, in a sense, mom and dad created. I mean, it's, it's, it, is, it is an amazing miracle. If you ever read a book or just looked at pictures of the development of a baby through time, it is, it's astounding because how does that happen? How, because the mother never wakes up in the morning and says, okay, baby, grow. Grow hands. Grow feet. Have lungs. The mother mom's not doing that, right? It just happens. Because that's how God has designed it to happen. And so there's a lot going on there, and it's, it's fantastic. And so in the same way a lot goes on there, when we are born again, we know we have come to life spiritually. We, we've got, we are born of God. All right? So we did not say spiritual life rise within me. That's not what we did. We just receive what God has given to us. Uh, and it's a marvelous thing. And now we have this new lease on life, a new life that God has given us. And that's and, and to have help with all of that because the odds are against us. That's why Paul wants us to understand this union we have with Christ and that, that we cannot be separated from that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace, love, kindness. We thank you, Father, for the gift of Christ, the gift of your spirit. We thank you, Father, for the identification we have with Christ. We thank you, Lord, that our identification with you is so strong that when you see us, you see Christ, you see the righteousness of Christ. 
uh, Father, it's, it's an amazing thing. And we pray, Lord, as we continue to contemplate that and mull that over in our minds, we pray, Lord, you would awaken us, Lord, to the reality of that truth. We pray, Lord, that it would strengthen us to, to strive, to work hard, uh, to pursue righteousness, to live for you, uh, to never be satisfied with where we are in our growth. We pray, Lord, also that we would have a loathing of our own sin, that we would desire, Father, to rid ourselves of sin and the pain and the agony and even the slavery that it brings. We pray, Lord, that you would restore to us really the great joy of our salvation. We pray, Lord, as we understand these things better, that our joy would deepen. And, Father, our approach to life will become very different. We thank you, Father, for the truth that Paul has expressed here. We pray, Lord, again, that it would become something that we will be able to eagerly embrace and, and understand. We ask now, Lord, that you would keep us safe as we're dismissed. Watch over us. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would continue to, to strive with us, to help us, to give us those things that we need, that, Father, we may live for you in a life that is filled with great joy. And we do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.